Welcome to Standpoint, a podcast from India discussing global issues of the moment. I'm Shruti Kapila. I'm Orgo Sengupta and today's episode is on healthcare as a public good. India spends merely a shade over 1% of its GDP on public health. At the same time, the government of India treats seems to treat at least health as a priority with the recent announcement of a health insurance program, the Prime Minister's Jan Arogya Yojana, which provides cover of up to 5 lakhs per family per year. What is the basis of this schizophrenia that India has that health is a priority but still we don't spend enough and what is it that might be needed for India to make its population more healthy these are some of the questions and more that we hope to discuss today with our guest Ms Shailaja Chandra who's a former health secretary to the government of India and one of the foremost analysts of the health sector in India post her retirement thank you Ms Chandra for joining us today So uh let me start by since I already made this point in the introduction why does india spend so little on healthcare it's a question of how big the cake is and how many slices you have to cut whether it is health or education every government that aspires to come to power will always say that they would like to spend more but when the pie has to be cut it always comes down to eliminating what is dispensable and this is not seen as a good that can be um lobbied for by any section of the public as much as investment in roads and in communications and in all the other larger sectors uh, immediately commands That's so right. as you it, it's not a decision which is taken let us eliminate health or let us uh, you give them less but it's just that this the need is so much greater that it's the softer areas always get eliminated that's right because as you as in as you seem to be indicating that health is a public good in that sense as there is no one lobby which can advocate for it as effectively as someone might lobby for foreign direct investment but that brings me to a subsidiary question which is that it seems like countries around us and i'm not even talking about the uk and the us which are spending over 7 and 8% of their gdps on health but countries around us like say nepal or bangladesh, bangladesh. are spending large amounts of money on public health and at the same time doing better in terms of life expectancy for example than india now where do you think that dissonance lies what's happening in these countries that's not happening in india that's pushing their governments to spend more you know it's also the way we are structured mm. we are we call ourselves a federal country but when it suits any government at the center the statement is often made health is a state subject under the constitution that's and right. that that's gives right. you almost uh, amnesty against having to do very much more than is your critical responsibility under the constitution and yes there are some things which central government has to do and so it pays for those things when it comes to the state governments for the reasons i gave earlier the public at large has not become attuned to claiming it as a right as long as they don't claim it as a right no state government will invest in except the minimal it's very interesting you say that because of course uh, given india's federalism there is this issue about how to deliver and raise even consciousness but india has also seen the rise in the last 30 years of very strong regional parties why isn't this part of a political as it were demand rhetoric or even as part of a election campaign because public has not realized that it is a claim 
on your very existence from birth to death that you can claim this as a right. I want to share with you something. I'm digressing, but it will answer your point. You see, you have in India more unqualified medical practitioners than qualified. Jhola chap doctors, call them quacks, whatever. I'm not deriding them. They're doing a service. But they exist. Why? They exist because there's a need. And the need is I want to be treated so that I do not have to forego my income of the next day. Because most of these poor people are on daily wages. I need medication. I need it fast. And the guy who I go to, let him give me an antibiotic. What do I care? If I am back on my feet in a day, at least the next two days, I would not have to take leave from work. So that becomes of prime importance. That being so, you feel that that is what is health. <laughs> you don't look at the big picture of malaria, leprosy, TB, blindness, AIDS. Mm. That's mm. not what people mm. think about. Mm. People think about the here and the now. Mm. And for the here and the now, there is this informal shadow healthcare system, mm -hmm. which is private, which is illegal, mm -hmm. which is fanned in a way by the f formal sector, formal health right. sector, formal um, um, private health sector, mm -hmm. which says, bring me a guy mm -hmm. who needs my help, mm -hmm. which is the qualified doctor mm -hmm. saying to the quack, mm -hmm. the quack has this security. I will treat you. I'll give you mm -hmm. antibiotics. I'll take 15, 20 rupees mm -hmm. from you. Mm -hmm. I have bought my drugs from a wholesale market mm -hmm. and I am able to make a clear profit. If it doesn't work, I'll ring up the doctor who is the qualified doctor mm. sitting in Panipat, Karnal, um, Sonipat, wherever you... It's throughout the country, by the way. And say, I'm bringing on my scooter so-and-so. What are you going to charge? Because he seems to have this problem. The guy will pay him a 30% commission on his fees. And this is accepted throughout the country. 30% is what he will get paid for having brought a poor person for having getting treatment done. So this kind of a revolving door is in any case going on. When this is going on, the guy who is at the receiving end doesn't realize that I shouldn't need to be going here. I should be able to go to a clinic. His clinic is the primary health center. The primary health center is 5, 10, 15 kilometers away from his place of residence. If you look at the spatial mapping of all the villages, you will find that the distance to a primary health center, maybe a third of the villages are up to 5 kilometers distance. Another third are ten kilo, up to 10. And another third are more than 10. How would anyone have the wherewithal to spend the transportation money, even if he has a scooter, which he doesn't have, a daily wager doesn't own scooters. Suppose he has to take a wife or a child, the whole day is gone. So he will go to the quack and the quack will give him the ampicillin or campicillin, whatever it is, from a good company. It will be a proper drug. It won't be, a, um, that won't be fudged. As doctors say, 90% of whatever happens to you is self-limiting. Mm -hmm. If you get an antibiotic bunged into you, you're bound to be okay. doesn't matter what antibiotic resistance takes. It doesn't matter. That man is able to go back to work. That woman is able to go and do the dishes the next day. This being the situation, mm -hmm. people haven't begun 
to demand hmm. that I should not be going to a quack. I should have this at my doorstep within walking distance. No, I think you're absolutely right that it has certainly evaded a claim, uh, claims-based kind of discourse. I mean, this has happened almost for a hundred years. And and uh, is it, I mean, I'm a historian. And one of the things that struck me is that this may have had to do with a longer lasting colonial legacy where the state provision of medicine was seen to be coercive, was seen to be invasive, was seen to be a form of policing rather than actually something that was palliative or transformative. So do you think, particularly on the nexus between, as it was, state and medicine, we may not realize this, but this is a much longer legacy of, of, of colonialism? No, I think it's um, <clears throat> you're right in one sense mm-hmm. that before the Bhor Committee report came, yes. what did India have? It had these practitioners who were called licentiate medical practitioners. Mm. They were not doctors. Mm. They had a license to practice and they Mm. looked after a small jurisdiction. Mm. They were not doctors, remember. Mm. They were washed away, wished away by the Bhor Committee Mm -hmm. and a completely elite system replaced it. That's right. That elite system was the normal MBBS doctor. Yes. The MBBS doctor was trained either in England or maybe in India, but he was from the elite background. Right. He's not going to leave Pune or Nagpur or um, Nasek or Sonipat or wherever there is a city or a township. Right. He's never going into a rural area unlike the LMP. <laughs> you needed to wish away those LMPs because some of them were up to no good. Mm. My point is that once you replace this elite system, the public was still used to some nearby kind of a... a, a, Yes, that's right. So they would go to an Ayurvedic fellow Mm. who was the old Ayurvedic fellow who made your... He he plucked the herbs. Yes. He he did the mortar and pestle in your presence and he gave you what you needed. Not not as a generic medicine, but because you had a certain propensity, you had a certain disposition. All that got washed away. The Ayurvedic guys decided, let us become clones of the Western medicine. So let us start bulk drug manufacture, let us start bottling, let's start pills. So you wished away, you you got rid of something which you had, Mm -hmm. which was unique. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you disassociated from the rural areas Mm -hmm. and the rural areas had nothing else to fall back on. Mm -hmm. So either they went to the Ved, Mm -hmm. who might Mm -hmm. cure them, Mm -hmm. if he was a good Ved. Mm -hmm. If he wasn't, you go to the quack. This is what happened. And I think your paper in EPW on unqualified medical practitioners as in was really... Uh, eye-opening for me because I didn't realize the fact that uh, this is still happening in such a pervasive way and actually I think that makes a lot of sense that this is why this the people's idea of healthcare is essentially the local practitioner rather than the big hospital necessarily but uh, I want to pick up on a couple of points that you made because it seems to me that especially given the story of unqualified medical practitioners still holding sway that one of the key needs at this point of time is primary health care and you were giving those numbers of a third of people don't have a primary health care center more than as in closer than 10 kilometers from their house uh now, given that primary health care is such a need, the government at this point of time, as in while it's talking about making more primary health care centers, seems to have put its slot firmly behind secondary and tertiary health care through the Ayushman Bharat program, which is going to provide insurance cover. Now, 
do you think that this is getting things in the wrong sequence? That, of course, we need primary healthcare, we need secondary and tertiary healthcare, but do you think we should have focused on primary healthcare first? <clears throat> I think both should have come simultaneously. One needs the other. It cannot be a standalone situation. The person who needs hospitalization and needs an operation is going to benefit from Ayushman, undoubtedly. But how long does it take to be told that you need hospitalization? You don't walk into a hospital and you're told tomorrow go and have a surgery. It takes a normal, uneducated, illiterate person something like a year to get diagnosed. Because the diagnosis, it's first, he doesn't know he has TB half the time. He, he, he has multi-drug resistance half the time. These are completely different issues which Ayushman cannot really take care of because they're so long drawn out. Yes, if he needs an appendix, appendix operation, his wife needs a hysterectomy, somebody else needs um, even a, a cardiac operation, Ayushman will definitely take care of that. But that is only a small segment. The larger picture is what I described to you. Uh, 600,000 villages, all of these 600,000 villages looking only to the taluka or the block as the first place where you will get anybody like a medical officer. The rest of them are all these quacks or their private practitioners who are not there in every village. They are at a nucleus place whom you access on payment. That is tried to be replaced through the wellness center idea. Once the wellness center comes, if it comes in its ideal, uh, you might say, um, manifestation, it should be having diagnostic tools. It should be having somebody who can dispense medicine. They are almost coterminous with what the old sub-centers were. The old sub-centers were only doing ORS and, you know, reproductive child health, little bit of, you know, antenatal care and that kind of thing, and the cold chain for immunization. If you're going to replace those defunct bodies, which were just doing, you might say, a small segment of what health and medical care constitutes with wellness centers, you will still need somebody equipped to run that. That person, unless he has special dispensation under law, cannot be today anybody but a medical officer, which means he needs an MBBS at the least. Today, you're not producing MBBS. The minute you get an MBBS, he wants to specialize because the money doesn't lie in becoming a single practitioner. As it is, corporate hospitals are eating up even nursing homes. That being so, you will never find a doctor willing to go at the sub-center level, which is what the wellness center is almost coterminous with. If you don't have that, you will have, through law, have to equip a nurse practitioner or a paramedic or somebody that you can dispense medicine, you can do ultrasound, you can do BP, you can do x-ray, all that. Are we really talking of all this happening in the public sector? No. I think it is conceived of as being a public-private partnership in the wellness center. As soon as you do that, costs will go up. They'll explode. 600,000 villages, let's, uh, we're talking about about 6,000 blocks in the country. We're talking about 720 districts in the country. So, and 67% of the population is in rural areas, That's not true. in urban areas. Urban areas has its own problems. I'll come to that if there's time. But this is the real crux of the issue. That's right. So I think there are issues of medical education there, and we'll just get to that in a minute. But there are two follow-up points that came out of what you said. As in the first is in terms of the poorest of the poor. And how does 
a program which is taking care of hospital expenses for patients who need hospitalization how does that how does the ayushman program work or not work for the poorest of the poor that's the first and the second is that the constant thread of your argument is that we need to get closer to the ground and if we if the state has to get closer to the ground whether itself or through a private hospital it strikes me like education was taken out of the state list and put in the concurrent list in 1976 given the fact that large amounts of health expenditure as it happens through the center do you think that perhaps there's a case and especially to not allow this risk shifting that you mentioned that it's a state subject and so we won't do it there is a case perhaps of thinking about putting health in the concurrent list so that we cannot allow any state entity to evade responsibility and so whether it's the center or it's the states everybody has a responsibility to provide good public health you've raised a very interesting question However, I cannot see this ever happening. That's true. You, I mean, we are talking about <laughs> a, it's a pipe dream. A constitutional amendment is a pipe it's dream. It's a constitutional mm-hmm. amendment. Yeah. No state is going to give its willingness, and it will be torn down as being an interference of the highest order. Sure. However, I would say some things need to be on the concurrent list, and the most important subject which should be addressed is the question of medical regulation. the practice of medicine regulating it not what medical council of india done which is to to sanction the colleges and to also look after the standards or not look after but they will come to that but let us look at the simple issue of what has to be done to regulate my argument has been that you have a situation where there is no regulation today by anyone on what happens in a hospital how much they charge what kind of tests they run no audit of any kind to look at whether what has been done is even within a modicum of what ought to be done the antibiotic uh, usage policy which is creating a lot of other problems these sort of things do require regulation they are not impossible and my argument has all uh, all along been shared by people that you need like you have a consumer court at the district level state level and the central level you need a similar body for medical tribunal where you have a, a judge and a medical doctor who will take a look at this negligence malpractice all those issues and medical audit of what is happening inside hospital because that is the protection the middle class needs they are not getting it they exist and they are very large and they are growing and they should not be left to the free will of people who are treating it as a business and once you uh, you you allowed foreign direct investment you allowed customs duty exemption you gave hospitals the status of industry it behoves you that if there is a regulator for for electricity there's a regulator for telecommunication there should be a regulator for this business as well because it is a business it is no longer uh, if in any way esoteric I mean I think the point of regulation is an interesting one but could could I just altruistic I'm sorry I mm. used the wrong word it's malapropism sorry no, I think you raise an interesting question about regulation as a way in which as it were the the state can enter uh, the question of health and as a public good but I am struck by the fact that the state has ceded so much of its responsibility on health to 
the private sector, to the unregulated sector. So, I mean, in a way, I, what I'm asking is that how can health actually become a right? Where, what, do, what are the steps required for it to become a right? And actually, just to follow up on that, as in, I just remember a paper that Kenneth Arrow had written a long time back, which said that the very term profit denies health relations, which should be a fiduciary relation based on trust. trust yes. And so the question really arises, what is the place for private health care as in, in the country? If any. I think private sector has done extraordinarily well. Let me not take away from the glory. The kind of, you might say, um, money you had to put in to get any kind of intervention done abroad that is all washed away now. You have people from other countries lining up to have services given here. Whatever money may come into it. So private sector has a big role. Government will not be able to give those services. They should exist. People can afford to pay. Let them pay. But I would say as far you have to divide the country into the haves and the have not. Those who can afford to pay, whether they are insured through private insurance or through whatever other systems come to work, it is a different ballgame. But to regulate them is important. As far as the the poor, and I wouldn't say poor means the poorest of the poor. It means the lowest end of the working class. Those people definitely need to have public health care. It should be taken as given that just like you have in Canada or in the in UK, you should be able to walk into a clinic and get free diagnosis and a free prescription because the state has provided for it. You should have access to a family doctor. You should have all your records maintained and not have to worry about the fact that today you're paying 500, tomorrow you're paying 1000. So much is the cost of this drug. Should I buy it? Should I not buy it? This is the vagaries that should be done away with and they can never be done away unless it is done by the public sector. That's right. To return to them therefore the question of health as a right. You mentioned uh, England and you mentioned Canada, there, of course, the question of insurance is a very marginal one, yes. right? I mean, yes. in fact, and I think there's a, there will be strong resistance in places like Britain for the entry of private players. So I was just wondering, like, how, I mean, here the emphasis just seems to be on regulation, and you yourself have actually re the country by saying haves and have-nots and private and therefore public. But maybe what we need is more the empowering of the public sector, rather than for it to just cater for the for the poor. You know, I think, look at it from the point of view of a, of a government. Money is short. Services have to be given. It is better to opt for something which is being done fairly well than to opt for nothing. You'll get zero if you say we don't want the private sector, like in Canada and UK. That's why I gave the example that at the primary level, at the level where even I, if I want to go to a clinic where I'm registered, I should be free to go to that clinic. Today I can yes, go to... Yes, but in the case of England, you can even get very expensive operations. At, I mean, all health is free on delivery. All, all healthcare is free on delivery there. So it's not a matter of just primary, but even the most complicated uh, procedures are free. So I was just wondering here, we seem to be constantly uh, to be fixated on, on the primary aspect or, and then say, well, the secondary, the high-end operations can be privatized, right? I'm just trying to kind of question that, put some pressure on it because some of our best research hospitals are government-run. Right. And you will see that, you know, you constantly see that 
people who are you know elite members or even political political elites will actually get themselves treated in government hospitals so you know what is the hierarchy then therefore between the public and and the private given as it were the stature of some of our uh, our government hospitals you see the government hospitals you take aims for example hmm. or pgi chandigarh, PGI chandigarh. they have the best doctors hmm. and they are doing a yeoman service hmm. but the conditions in which patients have to live over there hmm. the queues that have to hmm. be you know hmm. followed hmm. And the fact that doctors don't have lunch till four in the afternoon, that's not the best way to be running a, a, a proper health system. The numbers are too huge. The demand is too huge. And therefore, in a poorer country, which has not done planning, let's not blame any one government. Mm. It hasn't happened over 30 years. Mm, yes. This kind of thinking should have happened in the 70s. Mm. We allowed the entry of the private sector. Now that you've Im Im allowed it, they are going to flourish like a business. Mm. They're an industry. Mm. Are you going to close that industry? You've gone and opted for it. It's too late in the day now unless mm. you say we take back the order making it an industry. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. is what and that is a decision of a Ministry of Finance. Right. They took this decision in the era of globalization mm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. That having happened, you cannot now turn the clock back. That's, That's right. And I, and I think that I agree with you entirely that as far as private hospitals are concerned, as in we can discuss whether they should be there till the cows come home. But the sure fact no. is that that, I, that debate, I think, is sealed as in yes. private hospitals are there. But where I think as in there seems to be more of an open question is private medical colleges. And let's because as a lawyer, we see that private medical colleges are perhaps some of the largest litigants in the Supreme Court every year when it comes to admitting students. In fact, I had contributed a chapter in a recent book called healers and predators on this issue and the and what always strikes me is the fact that there seems to be a a big need for doctors because there is that need the state cannot now provide medical education facilities and so what has happened as a result of that is that that void has been filled in by several shops and some are better than others, but which have very basic infrastructure. And again, because of the conditions of the Medical Council of India, is very poorly regulated at most points of time. Now, do you think that as far as private medical colleges are concerned, what is it that the state needs to do in terms of regulating this? Because at the end of the day, the entire cornerstone of this of the health system, whether public or private, is the doctor. And if the doctor is coming out of a college where he or she is not being trained properly, then I think this 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 debate is fairly meaningless. So how 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 do we think about private medical colleges? See, one must also look at the history of private medical college, the recent history. Till 91, the policy was no new medical college. So in a way, we created that artificial need right in 1991. Suddenly, a constitu an, an, an ordinance was passed putting this subject on the concurrent list, giving the power to the central government and only the central government to establish, to give permission to establish a new college, start a new course of study or increase the number of students. This was, a pol this was something which the states were doing till then. Overnight, through an ordinance, it became a central privy. That having come to central government, the Colleges are, I'm sorry if it's uh, taken differently, but they're all run by politicians. Mm. 
the private colleges. They are run by politicians or by businessmen because there is a return on investment, right. which is a very handsome return. Again, it's a business. Without a guarantee of performance. Yes. <laughs> so I would say the National Medical Commission bill, I have many problems That's with that. Right. One of the best things that it did, however, advocate was there would be an exit examination. So mm. everybody is judged by a certain standard. That's right. The minute you have a standard by which your product is going to be judged, you may claim to be a doctor of any kind of a, you know, this university, that university with the best labs, the best teachers. You may have ghosts, uh, actually. You may have no beds. You may have no patients. You would have to make all that happen because the proof of the pudding would be if I put a crore of rupees into getting admission, I want to get the label of being a doctor. If that label comes only through a one common examination, I would jolly well have to make those beds and those patients and the hospital run. So it was a very good measure. I'm surprised that that bill never made it. And um, at least this portion of the bill, I have other quarrels with it. But this was a good provision. But like with everything else, are we going to, if that examination comes, are we going to keep making the standards lower and lower and lower to make the common denominator so hopeless that you are really suspicious of the guy in front of you, is he a doctor at all? That is the uh, question that bothers me. And to answer your specific question, I would say that the medical education area, everybody says medical council has to be superseded. Everybody says that we'll have it by nomination. We don't want to have elections. All that is fine. But at the end of it, the persons who are guiding this are very largely the lobbies are run by the very people That's who have right. set up. So are you ever going to overcome this? You can only overcome this if you have a far-sighted uh, um, process in which the ministry or the cabinet comes to the conclusion that the greater good is more important than the smaller mm. good. Well, that, the, that just, is on, just on one quick point, doesn't that exit examination is a great idea, but if we were to see the analogy of how it's played out in the legal profession, where the bar there was a bar examination introduced in 2010, what seemed to happen over the course of the next three years was the fact that the standard was reduced so much that the bar examination question paper really wasn't worth the paper yes, that it I was written. Yes, I put the caveat on. there for That's it. Right. So it's, uh, you know, things can work out in strange ways when there are lobbies which are very strong yes. that are involved. No, no, go ahead. No, that's all. That's all. I no, no, I mean, I, no, I just wanted to actually steer you back because all the emphasis seems to be on, as it were, what the state can do or what, as it were, technocracy could do. But I want to return back to the question as to why it is not part of our political discourse in a way other other public goods are part of our, our, our political discourse. Why is it that health is not something that is demanded on and how might that change? What are the, therefore the steps to make it actually a public good, quite apart from regulation and so on? You see, the a tipping point comes. The tipping point has not come in India when people have stopped thinking about the day-to-day, -day, the here, the now, my salary, my house, my um, EMIs, my um, children's education and all that. This has not become a core issue. People are still able to helter-skelter, get some sort of a modicum of service which they take as something they are destined to have to pay for. Yet, if you look at the statistics, they are catastrophic. It is not a healthy society. Yes. 
So it, where is the mismatch? You know, this is the problem about the mismatch that the, that people don't seem to experience this as a catastrophe, though the though as it were the 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 statistics will tell you that Indians are doing very badly on health. So this gap, I mean, to return to the question again, I mean, uh, is that is it because somehow sure the private players are there and there's a complex history that you very eloquently pointed out the problem is that somehow indians have been suspicious of the state as a provider of health which is slightly different from what has happened in say canada or in europe where in a way the state is seen to be the natural as it were guarantor of health right and here is it colonialism I mean, is it that or is it that actually our policies, even in independence India, some of the health policies are seen to be quite coercive? Uh, you know, think about, you know, forced uh, you know, sterilizations and during the emergency. So, you know, the state is seen to be not a benevolent uh, uh, provider of health. Oh, yes, but yeah. so how does, you know, how does that change? You're, you're quite right. The state is not considered a benevolent provider, a provider of any real great standing unless you know someone, hmm. unless you have the sifarish. Somebody has put in a word, the big doctor is not going to see you. I know that when I was the health secretary in the Delhi government, I had hospitals which were, I wouldn't, I mean, let me just use a facetious remark. They were at my feet. I could really command any doctor that, so if a domestic staff of mine got ill or his family got ill, I would say go to the local LNJP hospital. And I'm putting in a word and you will be seen. Imagine I'm putting that, I'm, I'm giving the bridge. He said, I don't want your bridge. I'm much better off going to the the, the neighborhood clinic That's run correct. by a private exactly. RMP. RMP is not a registered medical practitioner. Yes. He too was a kind of an elevated quack. Mm -hmm. RMP is mm -hmm. only rural medical mm -hmm. practitioner. Mm -hmm. Some or the other, they like the term RMP and he calls himself RMP. <laughs> so people think he's a medical practitioner or they didn't know meant registered. The, my domestic staff, for whom I was willing to lay the red carpet, mm. uh, maybe unethically, but I was willing to do it mm. to save my mm. own, uh, um, you might say, work um, um, mm. not going awry. But the fact is he declined mm. because he felt he would get quicker service at a cost which was affordable compared to the time spent in having to go through the government system. Right. So it's a question of the services being too uh, uh, much so sought capacity after. Issue. Capacity issue. And the state, because of rudeness, because of the churlishness with which you're received in many of the government facilities, people would say, I'd rather pay but not be treated like this. So that is also I think one that's rather pessimistic picture and I don't want to end on a pessimistic no, note. No, you must not. So, so the, here's my last question. Uh, that if you were, again, Health Secretary the Union of India today, what are the three big reforms that you might think of to make India healthier? I would put India into three categories. The same, primary, secondary and tertiary. I would say this insurance scheme that has been done is fine, but it needs to be linked with how is the diagnosis going to be provided mm -hmm. quickly so that you know is it a case of hospitalization or is it a sure. case of some? That is one, you've not done the linkage, it needs to be done. Number two, we had huge successes when it came to many of our communicable diseases. We have crossed those humps. It was in my time, we thought it was unthinkable. We were able to contend even with AIDS. We have the system, the system can function. 
if it is given the kind of you might say freedom to function our doctors are not bad it can be done and we have done it for many communicable diseases we've brought down maternal mortality brought down infant mortality pushed up institutional delivery all this has happened by the same rotten system that we are deprecating that system can work but you have to be very clear what will they do and what they need not to that is the second reform that i would like to see i would like to also see that you set up and i'm saying something which will not be accepted easily by anybody but you asked me if i were health secretary i would like to push for an auxiliary medical service for the rural areas who are thanks to gps thanks to technology can be put under the supervision of a qualified doctor government or private it doesn't matter make him an honorary or something but he is responsible for that auxiliary what is the jurisdiction what kind of medication is he giving and a kind of a support system if he needs advice i think you need that down at the village level you cannot cross that bridge by imagining that doctors will go there they will not i think these are extremely pragmatic solutions uh, there are dark clouds over public health in india but perhaps more than one silver lining as you've pointed out thank you very much ms chandra for joining us today for this episode of standpoint this is our last episode of this season we'll hopefully be back uh, after to the election season to talk about other critical issues of governance in India but i hope you liked this series of discussions on topics which we think should have been headline topics in the elections but unfortunately aren't more for next season so bye from me bye from me and thank you once again ms chandra thank you for being here